got this unruly uh, mob calmed down a little bit. Then. <laughs> I've never heard this group so unruly. I mean, must be the Christmas spirit, I guess. Well, if you're visiting with us or you're a new member, we want to uh, thank you for joining our class today. Uh, we did have an announcement about our annual Christmas party. We know that you're not familiar with this, and therefore you would probably, if you're like I am, a little introverted, probably just skip the whole thing, but we want you to know about it. This is the highlight of the year as far as the social function is concerned for the class. It's, you know, you get up dressed up in your Sunday best and just come, and it is a great meal and a great program. And uh, so if you're interested in knowing something more about that, you want to attend the Christmas party, you see me afterwards, and I'll put you in touch with the right person. Now, my good friend Betty Smith back here, and her husband Bob. Betty still teaches at Criswell College, unless she got fired over the weekend. <laughs> so I don't know, is Dr. Johnson here? <laughs> if he is, he, he probably fired her and he didn't want to show up. He didn't get fired. She still teaches, she teaches English. Uh, which is a major job. That's much harder than teaching our students the Bible. And we got a cell phone going off over here. Okay, we're starting a new series in the Gospel of Luke. So take your Bible and open up to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to jump in just with both feet. Not going to do too much introduction. We've already gone through the book of Acts. So let me read verses 1 through 4. This would be Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This makes up the prologue or the preface of the book. The prologue or the preface of the book. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And Luke writes this, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now right at the beginning, we see that four groups are identified, or four individual groups or persons are identified. In verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. In verse 1... There's a group identified as the many. Look at this. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. This is a group of unnamed individuals who evidently have written an account or accounts of the life of Christ and those prophetic events that he fulfilled in the midst of people. We don't know who these people are that wrote these things. He could be including Mark, not an apostle, but just a friend of Peter's, maybe uh, writing down some of the things that Peter told about the life of Jesus, and he writes the gospel of Mark. It could be Mark, and it could be others, some things that never entered into the Bible. The second group is found in verse 2, identified as those. Just as the first group wrote some things down, look at what verse 2 says just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. That's the apostles. They were also ministers of the word. And they delivered those words and those events of Christ's life to us. Us includes Luke and the second generation of Christians. 
The first Christians were the apostles. They were eyewitnesses to the events, showing that Christianity is rooted in history. There were eyewitnesses to what happened to Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose. They saw the resurrected Jesus. What we believe are not fables and myths, rooted in eyewitness testimony. And these same apostles preached the gospel, preached the accounts of Christ to us. And they're still preaching it to us through the Word of God. They've written accounts and we're still getting it. Now there's a third person mentioned in verse 3. It's Luke himself. He says, it seemed good to me. So that's Luke. Now, verse 1 and verse 3 actually fit together. You could skip verse 2 altogether. And verse 1 and verse 3 would make sense if you just read them together. In fact, I'll do that. Look what it says. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all those things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account. So we see that Luke justifies his writing the gospel based on the fact that others have written a gospel account in the past. Luke, however, says he has a more perfect understanding. Notice that in verse 3. It seemed good to me also having a perfect understanding, indicating that maybe some of these other writers didn't have as much of an understanding as Luke did. Maybe that's why they didn't make it in the Scripture. Now, how could Luke have a perfect understanding of events that happened, he says in verse 3, from the beginning? How could he have a perfect understanding of the virgin birth? How could he know what Mary pondered in her mind? Remember when the angel came and she said, I pondered these things in my mind? How does he know what she pondered in her mind? How could he have a perfect understanding of that? How does he know conversations that went on between Mary and angels? How would he know that perfectly? Let me ask you, how would you know? If somebody told you, would that give you a perfect understanding? That would be a second hand understanding. It means he had to interview Mary. Luke, in order to understand and know what went on in her mind perfectly, had to interview her. And Luke, to being a medical doctor and a scientist and a historian, is very careful in the way he, what he writes. And so Luke gives us a very accurate account of events right from the beginning. Now look at the phrase, those things, in verse 4. Do you see that? That you may know the reality of those things. What things is he talking about? Well, that phrase, or a similar phrase, is used in verse 1. Look what it says in verse 1. Many have taken to set in order a narrative of what? Those things. Do you see that? Those things. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having a more perfect understanding of all things. To write an orderly account. Most excellent Theophilus. That's group number three or, or group number four. Fourth person identified. That you may know the certainty of what? Those things. What things? Those things in which you were instructed. So those things refer to the events and the ministry of Jesus Christ and the life of Christ. And 
Luke is going to write it. Verse 4 is his purpose statement. Why is he writing these things to Theophilus? Watch. Look at verse 4. That, so that, in order that you, Theophilus, may know the certainty, the accuracy of those things of which you were instructed. So, why is Luke writing the letter? He's writing the letter to help a guy named Theophilus. Notice how Theophilus is identified in verse 3. Most excellent Theophilus. That's a noble title. The same words that Paul uses when he addresses Felix and Festus in the book of Acts. Oh, most excellent Festus. Oh, most, most excellent Felix. Which seems to indicate to us that Theophilus may have some official government position. And he is a Gentile who evidently has been converted to Christ. And now, Luke says that he writes that Theophilus might know the certainty of those things in which he was instructed. Uh, why does Luke have to do that? Why would he have to write to Theophilus about that Theophilus may know the certainty of those things? It must be because Theophilus may have some doubts about those things. See, when you read statements like this, you always have to say, well, why would they say that? And it's because something's going on in Theophilus's mind during his life that makes Luke pick up the pen and write about shows Theophilus that these things are certain. So, maybe he has a group of friends who are trying to pull him away from Christianity. He says, ah, that's a bunch of myths. And so Luke picks up the pen and he's going to show that these things indeed are certain. Now, does that make sense to you? That's the prologue. That's why Luke is writing. Now we're going to get into the story itself. So let's pick up at verse 5. We're going to look at the background of this narrative, this account that Luke writes. Look what he says. He's going to start at the beginning, and notice where he starts. There was in the days of Herod. That's King Herod. That's Herod the Great. That's the one that built the temple. That's the one who killed all the baby infant boys. Infant boys when Jesus was born. That's the Herod. A very mean fellow. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous. They were both righteous. Walking in all the commandments. This is what it means to be righteous. Walking in all the commandments of the Lord and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in their years. So this is the beginning of his story. Now, here we discover something. Elizabeth is barren. To be barren was the worst thing a woman could experience in the first century in ancient Judaism. Uh, it was a shame not to have children. It was looked upon as a curse from God. So, was it a curse from God? That's another story. But it was looked upon as a curse from God. So this is a woman who is, it says, old, well above childbearing years now, and she's never had a child. So all of her life she has had to live with this stigma of not having a child. 
And people behind her back would say, well, there must be something wrong with her, or that God's displeased with her. He has not given her children. That's how people thought. But we know that's not the case. Why? Because in verse 6 it says they were both what? Righteous. Verse 7 says, but they had no child. So it's not because they were unrighteous. It wasn't because God punished them. And if you don't have children and you have, that thought's ever come through your mind, you just throw that thought right out the window. It has no biblical basis whatsoever. You can be righteous and not have children. And you can be unrighteous and have a slew of children. <laughs> so, <coughs> righteousness and childbearing have no... No, you know, they're not, they're not connected. <laughs> you know how you get children? It has nothing to do with righteousness. Okay? <laughs> In case you were wondering. <laughs> now, they don't have any disfavor with God. They're walking uprightly in His commandments, but they're without children. And, of course, they were both too old now to have children. Now, what do we know about these people? Look at Zacharias in verse 5. He was a priest. And it says he was of the, of the division of Abijah. Now the Jews had 18,000 priests that served in the temple. That's a lot. And those priests were divided into 24 orders or divisions. The division of Abijah was the 8th division of the 24 divisions of priests. So you can divide the 18,000 by 24, and you know how many were in each order. And each priest served twice yearly in the temple. Each division served twice yearly in the temple. They served one-week sessions. One, two one-week sessions serving in the temple. That involved a lot of things. Cutting up the animals for sacrifice doing all the different things that a priest would do. So that's what he is doing. He is in the order of Abijah. He is serving one of his week sessions in the temple. And all the priests had to serve two weeks a year, but they all had to come together. All 18,000 of them had to come together during the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So when those three feasts, those three celebrations... We're going on in the city of Jerusalem. You had 18,000 priests in that city. And you had about 300,000 people in the city making sacrifices. And these guys were kept busy day and night. Okay? So that's what Zechariah is doing. And notice that his wife, Elizabeth, comes from the line of Aaron. So she also comes from a priestly family. Aaron, of course, was the first priest. So you have two very godly people, very religious people. They don't have any children, and they can't have children now because they're too old. Now look at verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as the priest during his week period, before the Lord, in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, to serve incense was the most sacred of the duties that a priest could perform in the temple. Because there was an altar of incense that was, that was uh, set before the veil. And behind the veil was God's presence. That was the Holy of Holies. 
So the instrument or the piece of furniture that was closest to the presence of God was the altar of incense. And the priest would come up and he'd put coal and all this on the altar and he would offer prayers before God on behalf of the people. And this was such a sacred thing that you would only do it once in your lifetime. Now a priest served usually between the ages of 30 and 50. Served 20 years as a priest. Served two weeks a year, that would mean in the course of his life he would serve 40 weeks. And 40 times 7 would be about 280 days. And on one day of his entire career, he would burn incense on the altar. And it was so sacred, some guys never got to do it. And the way you were chosen was through the casting of lots. If the lot fell on you, you got to do it. And once it fell on you, your name was eliminated. You could never do it again. And that was considered the greatest honor that a priest could have. And so that's what he's doing. He's burning the incense. And look what it says in verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people, that's the masses of people, was praying outside at the hour of incense, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they had two periods of prayer, the morning prayer and the afternoon prayer. This was most likely the afternoon prayer at 3 o'clock when an animal was slain at 3 o'clock and sacrificed. And what would happen is that the priest would, uh, would go up to the altar of incense. He had some assistants who helped him, who, who, were like, who carried things for him. And some carried the coals, and he'd take the coals, and he'd put them on the altar of incense, and some would have the fire, and they would put the fire, and he'd get that fire burning, and he would stoke it. And uh, the smoke would start rising a little bit. And then somebody else carried some incense, and he put the incense on the coals, and a fragrance went up in the, te- in the temple. And these smoke and fragrance represented the prayers of the people who were outside in the courtyard praying. And the priest was doing all this inside And he was praying, he had his hands lifted up, and he was praying on behalf of the people. And then when he got finished praying, he would step outside into the courtyard, and he would say, God has heard our prayers. And the people would say, Amen, Amen. And then he would give them the ironic blessing. The Lord bless thee. You familiar with that? And keep thee. And he would pronounce the benediction or the blessing upon the people. So that's what's going on here. And while this is happening, look what it says in verse 11. Then, while he is praying, and the people were outside, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. This is an unexpected event. He wasn't expecting to be having his eyes closed and praying and then opening up and looks and there's an angel. One minute he's praying, the next minute there's an angel and he is absolutely scared. Troubled means that he is troubled to the point of shaking. Okay? And that's how fearful he is. He's not expecting to see an angel. He doesn't know what he's seeing probably at that moment. He's just frightened. He thinks he sees a ghost. You know, one of those kinds of things. Now look what it says. So he's fearful. Verse 13 says, 
But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. In other words, I'm here not to bring a negative message. This isn't some spooky thing. I'm not here to bring God's judgment or condemnation. I want you to know that your prayer has been heard. What prayer? The prayer on behalf of the people. So here, he's never had an angel, and he's never heard the story of an angel appearing to any other priest at the altar saying, God has answered your prayer. But I'll tell you one thing, he knows that prayer has been answered. How would you like to pray and have an angel come and say, God's just heard that prayer? I mean, that would be different, wouldn't it? That'd scare you, but it would be different. You wouldn't want to tell anybody they think you're crazy. So the angel comes and says, your prayer's been heard. And, look at verse 13. I've got another little message that God wanted me to bring to you. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. That's sort of like, and by the way. <laughs> now some people think that Zacharias was praying for a son, but he's not praying for a son. They're beyond childbearing years. He's praying for the people. The angel comes and says, basically says three things. First, makes the announcement. You know, you've, the time when you were pregnant and you made the announcement, of your kids made an announcement to you, it's like, guess what, Mom? You're going to be a grandmother. Well, the angel here makes the announcement. It all happens at once. Very interesting. Makes the announcement of a pregnancy. Identifies the sex without a sonogram. And uh, gives the name to the child. So... He said, this is the time to be happy. <clears throat> and look at verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. <clears throat> Can you imagine having God assure you through an angel that your child would be great? Not only great in front of people, but great in the sight of the Lord. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And this angel comes and says, I've got great news for you. You're, you're, the thing that you thought was never possible, you're going to have a child. It's going to be a boy, mazel tov, mazel tov. Uh, and he's going to be great in the sight of God. Remember Jesus said in Matthew, he says, he says, of those born among women, none is greater than John the Baptist. I mean, can you imagine that? So the angel says, this guy's going to be great. Your son's going to be great. And then he says this, And he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Now, when we read that, we just sort of read over that. But we don't know why he's not going to drink wine or strong drink, but there was a vow. We know in three places in the Old Testament, there's a vow called the Nazarite vow. And uh, it could be that that's what he had, that this child was going to be uh, considered a Nazarite by God. We don't know too much about what that means. Some priest would abstain from drinking wine for certain periods of time. Uh, we don't know if that's the case. We don't know why he's not to drink it. But what we think is that he is being chosen for special service for God. He has a special, unique position. A duty that he's going to carry out for God, and God is consecrating him, and he's not to drink wine or any strong drink his entire life. Um, 
Now that's not going to make him righteous. That's not what makes him great because he doesn't drink wine. There are great people who have drunk wine and there are people that are not so great that drink wine. So it has nothing to do with his greatness. He's just making a statement that he's been consecrated for, for God and he's just like some of the priests were in the Old Testament, just like the Nazarites were in the Old Testament, and he is not to drink. And then he says this also in verse 15. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, a lot of people try to do some doctrinal thing about this. I used to do that. I used to, oh, now John, he was filled from his mother's womb. And, you know, we get filled and I turn it into a whole doctrinal thing. That's not anything of what the angel is saying. The angel is just saying, uh, he's going to be a prophet. The mark of a prophet is that the prophet had the Spirit of God. The prophet spoke by inspiration, by the power of the Spirit. And he is saying, the angel is saying, John has been chosen to be a prophet from, from conception. He will be a prophet. He's chosen for that. And he will be filled from his mother's womb with the Holy Spirit. And that's all it's saying. It's not really making any more of a statement than that. Now look at verse 16. And then it tells about his mission in life. He will be a prophet, and here's his mission. Verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Which means that Israel has turned away from the Lord their God. His job is to preach repentance, call Israel to turn back to their God because they have been moving away from their God. And so his ministry is to call a wayward people back to God. Look at verse 17. He will also go before him, that's God, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, this is a quote right out of Malachi, and also in Isaiah. And the scripture said that when the Messiah came, God's representative, that he was going to send Elijah. And Elijah would precede the Messiah, and he'd be the forerunner, preparing the way for the Messiah. And so that's what John is seen as. He's seen as one who's coming in the spirit of Elijah to be a forerunner. <coughs> And he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers toward the children. And somehow they're going to be harmonious family relationships. We don't understand totally what this means. And I've read probably, you know, 15 commentaries on this. But somehow fathers are going to... You know, Jesus talked about the days when uh, there would not be natural love between parents and children. And children would be disobedient to parents. And parents would not have natural love toward their children. But... Uh, John the Baptist was going to turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children, and there would be harmonious family relationships. And the disobedient, he says in verse 17, to the wisdom of the just. Lost people, people who are disobedient, would suddenly listen to people who are righteous, and they would make up a remnant. To make ready, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, there would be a people who are ready to repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's John's job, is that of a forerunner. Now look at verse 18. We have Zacharias' response. Zacharias, now that's all good news. That's all good news. Zacharias said to the angel, 
How shall I know this? You have any evidence? You have a sign? Can you give me proof? Why should I take your word for on this? And so he he doesn't believe. He doubts. And uh, look what his answer is. He said, "How do I know this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years." In other words, nature dictates otherwise, angel. There's no way that we can have a child. And so basically he is just he's doubting and he's in a state of unbelief and he says, I don't believe you. And that's not how you answer the angel. Because in verse 19 it says, And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Now you missed that, didn't you? See, you've missed that. You've just read it, but you've missed it. Look at verse 18. In the middle of the verse, Zechariah says, I am an old man. And the angel said, I am Gabriel. I'm an old man. Well, guess what? I'm Gabriel. You doubt? Guess what? I bring a message from God. See? I'm the one who stands in the presence of God. Notice, I am Gabriel, verse 19, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. This is a God thing. This, we're not talking about nature now. This is a God thing. This is good news. And you're contradicting me. So, verse 20 says, But behold, now remember what Zechariah said. How do I know this? Do you have any proof? Is there any evidence that you'll give me that this will happen? How about a sign? And you say, oh, you want a sign? Okay, let me give you a sign. This will happen. Behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So watch out when you ask God for a sign, because he might choose a sign that you don't want. And the sign that God chooses in this situation is that Zacchaeus will be mute. Zacharias will be mute. So, and not only is he mute, by the way, we, that means he can't speak. He won't be able to speak for nine months. But we also know that he's deaf. Do you know that? Because if you look at verse 62, look over to verse 62. Uh, the baby's born and the mother says his name will be John. They said, well, you don't have any relatives named John. And so in verse 62, look what they end up doing. All the relatives and the people come around. So they made signs to his father. See, that's Zacharias. What, what he should uh, have called him. Notice, they had to make signs to the father. Not that he just isn't, he's just mute. He can't hear either. So they go... <laughs> John? Question mark? You know, they're having to make signs. This, this guy's not only can't speak, he can't hear. Which is very interesting. So, what we have is we have Zacharias uh, getting the sign. And then, look at verse 21. Now, all that was happening when he was inside there. Putting this, this the once-in-a-lifetime occasion of putting the coals on the altar... Suddenly he opens his eyes and the angel's there and all this is happening. 
And the people, look at verse 21. They waited for Zacharias out in the courtyard. And they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. What's going on in there, they're saying? It's never taken this long. But when he came out, he couldn't speak to them. They were waiting for him to say, The Lord bless thee. <laughs> He's trying to do sign language, you know. <clears throat> and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned to them, and he remained speechless. And so they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. <clears throat> and so the only thing they can figure is that he's seen an angel. Now, how would you do that? Let's imagine you came out, you were Zacharias, and you came out, and the people are waiting to have the ironic blessing, and uh, he's been you know, longer than expected, and now he's he can't speak, and he goes, and you say, what's cat got your tongue? You know? <laughs> now, he's going to try to explain to them what happened. Now, imagine you trying to explain, uh, you, you come up, I need some volunteer to come up and explain how you've just seen an angel and he said you're going to have a child. How would you say that? Like this? I mean, what would you do? <laughs> So we're dealing with, uh, you know, a big communication problem. And they finally said, did you see a vision? He went, yeah. So somehow they figured out that he had seen a vision. He couldn't speak. He was uh, dumbfounded. At least they thought, at least that much. Right. So now look at uh, verse 23. But when he came out and he could not speak, they perceived that he had seen a vision. Because he beckoned them and remained speechless. So it was... As soon as his days of service were completed, now the week is out, that he departed to his own house. And here we see the aftermath. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months. So here's this woman, you know, 50-some years old, pregnant, and she hides her pregnancy for as long as she can. How long did she hide it, does it say? Five months. Because what happens then? You start showing. You say, well, you showed before that. Well, not in the kind of clothes they wore. They wore those big old things that just hung down, you know. So she's, she's hiding this thing as long as she can. But I imagine that everyone saw a gleam in her eye and knew something was up. Also, her husband couldn't speak. <laughs> something was up. So they know something's up. But I think that she really enjoyed her pregnancy because this was a miracle. She would never expected this. And then verse 25, she said this <clears throat> after she hit her pregnancy. Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among my people. She said, finally. I don't have to be looked upon as a second-class citizen. And it's all the Lord's doing. So, this is how Luke opens up his Gospels. He's going to talk to this guy, Theophilus, who has some doubts about Christianity. There's a sense in which I believe the Gospel of Luke is like a catechism. It's like a discipleship program for this guy, Theophilus, so that he will be grounded in the faith. And he won't, he'll be secure in his faith, as the pastor talked about this morning. And he won't have doubts about his salvation. And so he starts right at the beginning, and he starts about a miracle of how the forerunner to the Messiah had a birth that was supernatural. And this is certain. How do we know it's certain? Because somehow 
Luke got the details. <laughs> he even knows what went on in the holy place. But the discussion that went on between the angel and uh, John the Baptist's parents. Now, unfortunately, Zacharias is not going to enjoy his wife's pregnancy as much as he should have. He won't even be able to talk to his wife. Everything's going to have to be through sign language, and she's going to have to sign to him because he's deaf as well. And uh, he should have been able to laugh and discuss and talk about the new baby and have a great time, but this is what disobedience does. And he's going to live in a world of silence for nine months, all because of his doubt, because he didn't take God at his word. And sometimes we miss blessings because we just don't take God at his word. And we get what we want, we, what we think we want, a sign, and as a result, we don't get what God wants and we miss the blessings. Now, most likely, and I don't know this for a fact, but, you know, if, if Zacharias and his wife were beyond childbearing years, it's possible that they never even got to see John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist was about 30 years old when he started ministering. So, it could have been that these people would have been 80 years old in those days. Not too many people lived that old. Now, they may have. We're just not certain of that. Uh, but we know one thing that they're going to have to rear this child very strictly. He's not going to be able to drink any wine, which is, would have been very unusual for people in Bible time. Uh, when Passover came, and there were four cups of wine that the Jews lifted up and drank during the Passover feast, they would have to say to their son, well, you can't drink the wine. And he'd say, why can't I? Everybody's drink. This is part of the Passover feast. And he, they'd have to say, well, because God said, that no strong drink or wine will ever come to your lips. And so there was a lot of things that this child had to be confused about. Just imagine trying to raise a child like this. I was thinking of uh, the movie, I forget what the movie was, but it was about the kid who was, uh, uh, I guess it was about the Dalai Lama when he was a kid, Tibet. Was it the movie called Tibet? And he's a little child and he's being raised up to be the next Dalai Lama. And uh, this kid cannot be like the other kids. And I'm thinking, here's John the Baptist who's going to have to miss out on a lot of things that normal people experience in even certain feasts, the Jewish feast, simply because God has put certain restrictions on his life. And uh, it might seem like a burden. Um, I don't know that it was a burden. You know, I'm in the ministry, and uh, at Criswell College, we have a statement that you don't drink wine, you don't drink any strong drink. And in fact, I haven't had a drink since I was converted. Now, a lot of people drink, and they would think, well, you're missing out on something. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. God's called me to do this, and this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm very comfortable with that. So, anyway, uh, John's going to be different from others, and they're going to be responsible. The parents are going to be responsible for raising him this way, and we don't know whether they'll ever see the results of a child's ministry when he grows up, whether they'll even live that long. But all of this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah chapters 42, 43, and 44, and Malachi chapter 4. Next week we'll pick up with the announcement of Jesus' birth. The birth announced to Mary. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we're in this Christmas season, we can deal with a book that uh, touches upon some of these subjects. Help us to realize that... <clears throat> Christmas is not just about the birth of Christ. A lot of things happen before that. It goes back to 
a different beginning. And sometimes, Lord, we miss out on these beginning events that made Christmas possible and the birth of Christ possible. And so, Lord, thank you for allowing us to spend some time in Luke's Gospel this morning. May this be a great journey as we go verse by verse through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.